Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of My Founder Story. This is going to be an interactive show that explores a founder's life story, the creation of their business, their dreams, hopes, desires, passions, crashes, burns, whatever, and then lets you invest in them if you decide to do so. I'm Dylan Yuska. I'll be hosting. Here goes nothing. We either got first place or nothing at all, right? But yeah, they announced the first place and they said, of course, who else could it go to except for Orotech? And I'm like, oh, wow, I did not expect that. Uh, and my knees were like shaking and I could barely stand, but I uh, managed to get up on stage and uh, win the prize. Dulik Ranantunga is the founder of Orotech, a biotech startup focused on solving the trial and error treatment of breast cancer. His family immigrated from Sri Lanka when he was just a kid. They moved to Canada, where he later attended the University of Waterloo. It was there that he accidentally discovered a material that changed the course of his life. But before that rollercoaster ride began, he was just a kid dreaming about sci-fi movies. I think it just starts with movies, right? Um, a lot of sci-fi movies, like, uh, I know the G.I. Joe movie specifically made the entire plot about nanotechnology, right? But, you know, so many different sci-fi genres have uh, nanobots that can repair your body or carry out random tasks, uh, and, you know, it can adapt to any situation. And it's just like a theme that's found all over sci-fi. So I thought that'd be a very interesting uh, thing to go into the future. And at first I was thinking that people actually built really tiny robots that can do things, right? That was my impression going into nanoengineering. I found out that's definitely wrong. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, when people actually refer to nanobots in, re in actual research nowadays, it's mostly like chemicals that can change shape when they're given in a given environment. So not as interesting as I first thought, or at least not as advanced as I first thought. But then like when you actually get into details, it's uh, crazy what you can do with just like simple chemicals or little materials that are very small and can change their properties or shape in a given environment. And that's kind of like the first step to building more complex nanobots. Uh, you sort of mentioned that, um, you know, your parents wanted you to kind of do like a more traditional route, but here you were like dreaming about, you know, nanotechnologies. Did you feel like you were going against the grain as a kid? The, the one good thing is that I did pick an engineering discipline. So that was fine with my parents, right? And they kind of didn't know exactly what I was getting into either. So they just thought it would be fine. And, um, you know, during my studies, they, they would still tell me like, oh, after this degree, uh, you're going to go to med school or try to be a professor, right? Uh, so they were still pushing me into either being like a professor or a doctor. But they thought that nanotechnology engineering was actually a good way to get there. So they weren't complaining until I got, you know, dropped out. <laughs> That's when the that's when they complain yeah i imagine why um from their perspective it was definitely a big risk so where did your sort of entrepreneurial path start so it was basically an accident i was working uh for a prof professor at waterloo who was who was that professor this is professor uh frank gu at the university of waterloo so he was uh starting a company called h2 nano and what that does is it takes uh, nanoparticles, puts it into oil contaminated uh, waters, and using the sunlight, 
it would actually degrade the contaminants so that you can clean out water with just like you know passive sunlight and then we can uh, filter out those nanoparticles back out and recycle them to treat another like water body of water. That was for like cleaning up oil spills or something? So it's for uh, when, we, when you process oil, you create this dirty water. So in Canada, the oil is taken from sands and the processing requires a lot of water. And the water that comes out is really uh, dirty and kills pretty much all life. So it's put into these man-made lakes um, and those man-made lakes are completely sterile and really like dirty, right? So nothing can live in it. You know, these lakes keep piling up, right? These are gigantic. Uh, so we have to eventually clean this up, especially because that's fresh water that is being wasted in these lakes. So the idea was to clean up these oil spills. It's not the oil spills, the oil contaminated water with these uh, nanoparticles. How did you even get into that, like that research initially? Again, that was by accident. So I was applying for a few different jobs and I was uh, looking at this kind of boring, like operations job. And I thought I was going to get it. It turns out I didn't. But at the same time, one of my friends also did get a job and he told me that he had to reject this job to take the other job. And that was in banking, right? Uh, so I wouldn't have wanted that anyway. But the job he rejected was this oil spill uh, contamination job, right? So he told, he referenced uh, me. I had an interview and they took me in, right? So I was working minimum wage and all that, but uh, it's actually uh, so much better of an opportunity than if I had gotten the uh, roofing, uh, the operations job. And, you know, just kind of done a more traditional but boring job for more money. Right? This, this job kind of opened me up to uh, a startup uh, by working in it in the earlier stages. It was in that lab where I accidentally made that uh, gel material for my first startup idea. You know, before that, I didn't think I'd do my own startup. But first, I worked at one and then I got my own idea. So I thought, you know, I could definitely do this. What, what was it like... Um... I guess the qualities of it that attracted you to like this uh, startup, like once you were in it. I think it's just that every week is different. As a researcher, you still have like the same main experiments, but every time something changes because you're so early in the development of a technology that's new, you're not just maintaining or doing the same thing over and over again. There's always a new challenge you have to figure out and that becomes even harder when you try to scale it. I like that there's so much variety in it and inventing something new, I think is one of the, the most intellectually challenging things you can do. So a startup is a great way to do that and take it from just, and it's not just about, you know, publishing a research paper where you have just enough research to say this works, but only to a degree or at a small scale or not maybe in a real world situation. But with the startup, you can take it past the lab too and see how well it works in increasingly like useful and practical situations. One day you're just, like working at the startup and you accidentally create this hydrogel. How was how that story? How did that come about? And yeah. what was that turning point like? Right. Uh, so what I was doing is uh, I was creating a nanoparticle and around that nanoparticle, I'm making a coating and that coating would be used to kind of recycle the nanoparticles that were used to clean the, the oil contaminated water. I was just supposed to make a coating that had the, the gel chemical that has a very thin layer around the particle, right? Like we're talking nanometer level thickness. And I was just making uh, the material that I would be using to coat it. And it was supposed to come out a liquid, but there was a mistake I made in the heating of the material. And the chemical reaction uh, went on it, like in the wrong direction. And it created the solid gel 
in a, in a little tube, which is like a 20 milliliter tube, this tiny, right? And I just flipped it upside down. I'm like, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a liquid, right? And it's just like not moving at all. It's complete solid material. So I decided to just like, you know, with my lab gloves on, uh, just poke it with my pinky. Naturally. Uh, just like, just, just, you know, just, just to make sure it's completely solid, right? And I, uh, you know, uh, press it. And all of a sudden, it bounces back out like, uh, like it was rubber, right? I'm like, wow, this feels almost like rubber, but a, a bit softer. And I thought like, you know, I'm wearing rubber shoes and they're comfortable, but they could be better. And so uh, why not just make this? Immediately you thought of like the first application of this or were you like distraught from having messed up this chemical reaction or you automatically just thought of this new uh, So I was, I was confused, right? But I was also just having fun poking the gel. And I thought this would be really uh, just like nice to like step on. Like if this was uh, in your shoe, this would be really nice. But then I went to like uh, the supervisor and told him about like what was going wrong. And he's like, oh, that shouldn't have happened, right? Uh, but, you know, I did the reaction again and it happened again. And uh, I thought, if I'm going to continue making this material, maybe I can figure out some use for it. And then I went back to that thought I had about, like, using this inside a shoe, like, as an insole. So I decided to go with that. Um, we did eventually fix the chemical reaction as well, got it to work properly. But this accident that I made, like, two or three times got me into that startup phase. So did you start moonlighting this side project where you're creating this gel that you thought would be an insole? Yeah, yeah. So this was uh, like during a work term during the summer, right? Um, and I thought like when I go back to school in the fall, I can uh, start working on this more and more. And I already had access to this lab. So I just started producing some, right? Uh, it turned, I mean, the material is really cheap. So it, was, it would have been really easy to uh, like make like that in the lab. Uh, without, you know, the the, uh, the professor or the people at the company being like, oh, you're wasting a lot of material. I'm just making small vials of it. So I just like, you know, made a few vials. I actually kind of like modified some it sometimes by putting uh, other little ingredients in like different metals just to see if it can be like softer or harder just to see what the properties are. And then when the, the fall semester of school started, I uh, wanted to get into like the startup community there. I found out like um, Waterloo is actually huge uh, for early stage startups. We have an incubator called Velocity, uh, which has a lot of, uh, especially undergrad students who come up with ideas and once they graduate, they keep working on it in their incubator space and, uh, you know, go to an accelerator or raise money and then move out. So I, uh, in the fall, I started working my way towards like understanding what the basics of the startup are so I can then, you know, pitch to Velocity and get into that incubator. And Velocity also has a pitch competition for 5k and 25k uh, every semester uh, so in that in that fall of uh, 2014 I saw the the pitches right and there was this guy sitting behind beside me and I told him about my idea and he's like oh that sounds like a really interesting idea let's work on it so for the, that fall me and him uh, and one of my roommates were working on the idea but by uh, the end of like December we realized that 3d printing stuff for like a mass market is not really the best idea uh, it was or at least it wasn't at the time you know, it was kind of too expensive to 3D print that stuff. And 3D printing accuracy, especially for gel-like materials, was not that high. Unless we invested in a $300,000 3D printer. And then we realized that, you know, we don't have any kind of way to get $300,000 for something like that. And if we had a $300,000 printer, maybe uh, like shoe soles is not the best thing that we should be printing with that. Just because, you know, like even if we could sell these at $100, we'd have to, you know, sell or make so many right uh to be able to eventually like make money off this so we thought like 
this is probably not the best business, uh, especially because we were all engineers. We didn't know how to do marketing. So, so I into this other research uh, in the winter, which is where I had another kind of co-op. I was working for uh, four months with this professor doing this biological research with these hydrogels. And at the same time, I uh, joined a co-op, like, uh, sorry, an entrepreneur co-op program where we get the basic tools to start a company, learn about, you know, how to differentiate ourselves, how to uh, do a business model canvas and just like pitch your startup. That's when we started going to pitch competitions and joined the incubator, got a lab and space. this was still in the, were you still making the Dr. Scholl's competitor here? The No, so at the end of December, like 2014, we stopped that. Um, and starting January 2015, I did biological research on these hydrogels. And so I pivoted into doing a company that's more uh, focused on the biological applications. So what did you think the initial like application would be? Did you know right away that it was going to be, you know, for, for cancer therapy? Uh, no, I think it took like six or seven months to really think about that. At first, it was just to make like uh, real and artificial organs, right? So real organs for organ transplant, artificial organs for like practicing surgery. The real organ uh, pitches that I did didn't go so well, but the artificial ones like to practice surgery went really well. But again, 3D printing didn't have the accuracy. So it's like over time, just kind of trying each little market segment, right? Like, oh, can we print a heart tissue? Can we print liver tissue? And we just kind of like went over each of the possibilities and at the same time, that's when I learned about like uh, my relatives having breast cancer. And I thought maybe we should try cancer because that wasn't initially on my mind. But, you know, six or seven months in, we tried that. Cancer cells were probably one of the easiest things to make in this gel or uh, like to culture in this gel. So it seemed like the most feasible thing to do. And that's when we kind of like specifically cancer. So for the first like few months, it was a lot of general research, trying all different types of cells in a material. How did that like news of your your family i guess personally motivate you it seems like yourself you had a lot of trial and error and getting yeah. to the right answer um did that play into it at all just that personal uh, motivation yeah definitely and part of it is i didn't really know how like um cancer was treated and you know now that i look back at it i realized that you know there's not that much information out there about the healthcare system and how people are treated but uh when my relatives got uh, breast cancer and two of them, right? Um, that's when I thought I would just research it. And it was crazy like how much guesswork there was because you know, we're, you're dealing with people who are like scientists, doctors, and they always go on the side of logic, right? But just the, the level of technology that we have right now uh, is not good enough to actually identify a single best treatment for cancer patients. And I thought like, wow, like everyone, all these people are going through trial and error, right? Uh, often they get the wrong first treatment and then they get the right treatment the second time. So, you know, um, that can make their cancer worse. They might lower their chances of survival. Even if they come out uh, fine at the end of like, let's say a second treatment, they still paid for that first treatment, right? Uh, either through insurance or themselves. And those treatments are extremely expensive. Um, in the U.S., they're $10,000 plus. So you have this this hydrogel and... Uh, you're sort of going through trial and error and then you stumble upon potentially a cancer uh, like application. What's next? So you start taking this to the stage, you start pitching. What was, what was like that experience like those early days? Right. So my first pitch was in January uh, 2015 and I thought we would win. 
and this we is, definitely what stage were you at here like you were doing the organs yeah so we just we basically just had the idea and i was only like three weeks into my research right so it was uh, pretty fresh um i just had like pro really preliminary data right um and this is like the first time i pitched a startup so you know most people would think that they're going to do terribly i was actually a little arrogant i thought i would do well just like from practicing it seemed to be going really well pitched to like my you know roommates and all that and they're like oh yeah it looks sounds great right i i went up a pitch uh my start, the start of the pitch was a terrible joke. Two people laughed. You remember that uh, joke? I still don't remember the joke. <laughs> it was so bad that it was like blocked from my mind. But I only I remember only two people who were at the front uh, out of an audience of like 30 laughed, right? Uh, moved on from that. When I finished pitching, right, I asked how pe people how like I, I did because I thought I did pretty well. And it's like, yeah, you definitely won. And it was really sad. Uh, not only did we not win, but there's a lot of winners in this pitch competition. So there were uh, 25 uh, companies pitching and 10 companies won prizes. So the odds were really good. So I'm like, oh man, I can't believe we didn't win with such good odds, right? Yeah, so that was, that was a complete shock. Yeah, yeah, I was not expecting that at all, right? What did you do uh, after that? Were you distraught? Uh, not distraught, I, I was just like uh, shocked, right? I was like rationalizing it for a bit, for, for like a day, right? at this e program, they had pitch coaching sessions. So every week I went pitch uh, to a pitch coaching, like a uh, one-on-one -on -one pitch coaching session, right? Which was like way more than like anyone else. I mean, like the, the winners of the pitch, uh, they didn't usually go at all just because they already won the money, right? But there was a midterm pitch uh, a couple months after where the people who didn't win could compete again for another 10 prizes. And I knew that, you know, if only 15 people were pitching this time and I didn't win one of the 10 prizes, then I'd be really mad, right? Because that means I'm in the bottom five out of 25. I'd be in the bottom 20%. Um, so, I, you know, every week I went and got some pitch coaching. And the second time I pitched, we actually got it. And then um, won another 15K at a, a Canadian business model competition where we got second place. So now we had a, a bit of money. And then the European pitch competition came up where, you know, we just kind of applied amongst a thousand other people. Uh, so you, in, you feel like you're on a roll at this point? You're building momentum? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's just that uh, two winning pitch competitions in a row, we thought like, oh, you know, this might be going somewhere. And, we, you know, there's a couple other smaller pitches that were for like one or $2,000 that we won. Not that much, obviously. But uh, when you're that early, uh, everything helps, especially because, you know, none of us had salaries at that point. So all we would be spending this stuff on is in like chemicals, materials, right? Uh, so $2,000 still went a long way. That's like uh, a week worth of research that we could do, maybe more. So there's this pitch competition in Europe. And what's your, I guess, what was the competition and what was your mindset before it? Did you think you were going to win? We actually didn't know if we were going to go. So it's called Wolf Summit. And just a 150K prize, no other cash prizes. You know, there's some media prizes, but that's more like exposure stuff. And, you know, there's a thousand applicants, a uh, hundred people got into the semifinals to pitch in Europe, right? With only one winner. Uh, so we got into the, 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 the pitch and at the time we hadn't received the money that we won yet. Uh, so we were still on personal money and we were like, oh, we got into the pitch, but we have to pay not only for the flights and hotel, but you have to actually pay for the conference, even if you're pitching. And that was 700 euros. So like, you know, we, we were all students. Um, so like, you know, affording flights plus that, like the whole trip was $3,000, right? And that's pretty much all the money I had. Uh, so we were initially gonna not go. We found out that there was this little travel grant that we could apply to. 
where we can get the money uh, paid for for a trip to like a pitch competition, but we didn't get it. So we're like, oh no, we got our hearts set on going because we thought we would get that uh, that little like reimbursement or travel grant, uh, but we didn't get it. So uh, we were like now really convinced that we wanted to go, but we weren't sure if we should because we don't have money to cover it. But you know, like last moment we decided, you know, let's just try it. Let's see what happens. You know, it's fifty thousand dollars that we can win. Uh, so that would go a long way. That would be by far the biggest prize that we won. That would probably last us a year uh, of research. Yeah, we decided to go just me. And at first, like, uh, I was like, I didn't think we were gonna win, right? We pitched to the semifinals with a hundred other companies, and then we got into the top six for the finals. But then I looked at who, was, who I was competing against and I'm like, oh no, these guys are all good. <laughs> now now this is going to be a little tricky. So once we got into top six, I didn't think we were going to get first place. Yeah, we pitched. I was the first uh, first pitcher up. I didn't even get to see any of the other pitches because I had to get off stage and go through the back. I missed every other pitch. I had no idea what any of the other pitches went, how, how they went. I got back into the, the stage, I guess. At the end of all the pitches, they start announcing always starting from like the, the ancillary prizes first, right? Like the media stuff. Uh, they had like raffles and ballots. So they started announcing those winners too. And like the pressure was killing me. And luckily it's not a th- uh, like a three, two, one countdown, like third place, second place, first place, because that would have made me even ner- more nervous just because if they announced third and second place, then we either got first place or nothing at all. Right. But yeah, they announced the uh, first place and they said of course who else could it go to except for Orotech and I'm like oh wow I did not expect that uh, and my knees were like shaking and I could barely stand but I uh, managed to get up on stage and uh, win the prize. What was that moment like did you feel just validated at that point like your life had changed? Uh, yeah I mean because immediately after uh, winning the prize I'm like I'm gonna drop out. <laughs> uh, so I thought like wow this is this startup can go somewhere right um, because uh, that was in April of 2015. I was supposed to go back to school in May in like two or three weeks. Um, and winning this uh, prize, it, t- it told me like, now we have like runway for a year. Uh, we have people who said this idea is good. We had investors who wanted to invest. And I didn't really know much about that kind of stuff at the start. So I actually just told them like, oh, we're not raising at all. And just kind of rejected all the money. <laughs> Hearing that though made me think, oh, you know, like, uh, when we need to get money later on, we could do that. But at that moment, you know, we had everything set for like an, another year. Uh, so, yeah, I was just like, at first really weak and numb, but then like super happy, like an hour after, you know, when like it all came together. And I'm like, when I get back to Canada, I'm uh, dropping out. So you were flying high, uh, ready to drop out. What did your parents think at this point? Yeah, so, so the thing is, I knew I wanted to drop out, but I knew my parents would react really negatively. So I figured out that if I told them I won this $50,000 first and then told them I'm just taking a year off to explore this, uh, they'd be more like willing to accept it. You know, they weren't totally happy, but they weren't unhappy either, you know, just because they knew that I had money to take care of like this thing. And if it went well, then like they thought I would, I mean, they thought regardless of whether it went well or not, I would go back to school. I, I managed to kind of stave them off for a year by uh, having that leave of absence excuse, telling them that I'd go back. But after a year, uh, we didn't fail yet, and most startups fail by that point. Uh, so I thought, like, yeah, our research is getting better. We can maybe get like into an accelerator soon and go from there. So I 
told them that I'd be dropping out after that one year. Did you ever have moments where you thought you had made a mistake that you wanted to go back? Well, there, there are two times that we almost ran out of money. And that's kind of like when I was scared and kind of questioning it. But at the same time, I think that was well after I dropped out. And after dropping out, I realized that I never want to go back to school. So even if things went bad, I knew that I was either going to work for a startup or start my own startup, probably both, like start with working with, at another startup um, and then come back and do another startup, you know, a year after uh, when I have another good idea. So by that point, I knew I just couldn't go back to school. So yeah, I, I didn't have uh, reservations about the dropping out part. You eventually joined an accelerator. Uh, yeah. When was that in... I guess, what was that experience like? Um, so we were applying in late 2016. We got into one in February 2017 into a Singularity University. So it was two months, you know, the standard accelerator deal. You get some funding, they take some uh, equity. And uh, they told us to list out all the milestones that we have to accomplish in the next six months. And we thought we'd be ambitious about it. So we got like some ridiculously tough milestones. And then we submitted it to them. And they told us, uh, all right, so now we're going to help you accomplish this in two months. And we're like, oh, no, this is too ambitious for six months. How are we going to do this in two months? But we managed to, you know, get a lot of that done. I think during the couple months that we were there, we only had one weekend where we didn't work. So I think almost every dinner we had for free, though, because either we had an accelerator event or an investor meeting. So that was good. And then, yeah, we finished, uh, we finished the accelerator. Because of the accelerator funding, we didn't need to raise for a bit. What was your biggest lesson from the accelerator, your biggest takeaway? Usually you think that you can't hit certain milestones in a certain amount of time, especially business milestones that aren't really uh, limited by things like chemical reactions where you need to set time. And we thought like business milestones could take a really long time. So we were relatively like uh, lenient on how fast we did business. But by being in an accelerator, we realized that um, if you condense uh, and have a lot of meetings in a very short period of time like these things compound and you can get a lot more done in a very short period of time so you went to TechCrunch disrupt and you went you went on stage at the wall street journal event to uh in front of the ceo of gopro pitching to him um yeah. you know, various judges what was it like getting on stage at these two huge events and right. i guess did it feel like you had come full circle from your days pitching at $2,000 contest yeah. in Waterloo? Yeah, it's funny. So the first thing is like, they're two totally different experiences. I, I felt like the TechCrunch pitch felt a lot more like the old pitches that I used to do where you're pitching on stage for money, uh, especially because TechCrunch Disrupt is a 50K prize. But Wall Street Journal is c completely different because it, it was more like a entertainment style event. So we weren't pitching for money or anything, right? And, you know, we were pitching to celebrities. There's like CEOs of big companies in the audience. You had a CEO of BC and actress as your judges, right? So it's like really different. Uh, and I, I remember when I was pitching, uh, I, think it was, I think it was the CEO of Go, GoPro who said, you know, I don't uh, know anything about the medical field, but uh, cool. It was a fun event where, you know, we just got to have a relaxed pitch and just more engage the audience. Uh, TechCrunch Disrupt was crazy though, you know. Um, it was like a pitch, other pitch competition, except the stakes were a lot higher and the company quality was insane, right? 
So like every single company they pick is uh, amazing and they have like less than a 2% acceptance rate, right? After you apply. So they, they, the competition is insane and you really can't predict who's going to win. So, you know, when we were pitching there, we were hoping that we could win, but like, there's nothing that really like gives you an indication because there's you know, other medical companies doing really cool stuff. There's all kinds of uh, industries like electronics, software, and AI, you know, they're all like doing really interesting technologies and you just can't figure out who's going to win. Um, so the competition was like fierce there, but everyone was friends. So it's not like anim there's no animosity. It's just that like the company quality was so high that you were just not sure what to expect. But, you know, the investors also uh, that were at the event know that the acceptance rate is insane for Disrupt. So they knew that every company that they would talk to would be good. So, you know, we just got to meet a lot of investors there and through a combination, like most of the investors that we talked to, including the one we closed was either a result of meeting at TechCrunch or they reached out because they saw the TechCrunch article that was published and our pitch. So like a lot of the inbound uh, investors that we got for this round was just from that single event. So at one point you discovered a fundamental error with, with your process. Um, what was that moment like and what happened? So for all of uh, 2015 and a lot of 2016, what we were doing is we would take cancer cells, put it in a material and we would test drugs on it. And that works fine when you're testing a single drug, but for patients that are being treated for cancer, they're usually treated with a combination of drugs. And in the human body, that's being circulated around, that's being metabolized by the liver. But in our system, all those drugs are accumulating. And when you have a combination of drugs that accumulate, they're going to kill the tumor regardless of how effective it is or isn't. So we were getting a lot of false positives, right? Whereas in a human body- Bad, very bad, right? Exactly. So basically what our test was doing is whenever we tested a combination of drugs, it was telling the, uh, the patient that it works, right? So we can test like five different combinations that are already FDA approved, obviously, and all five of them would work. Uh, but that's not very helpful because uh, the doctor could just guess that one of those, those five would work and have the same success rate. And the other problem is that that's not necessarily going to actually be the case. So if our system says all five drugs work, that's not necessarily true. Actually, more likely only one or two of those drugs are going to work, right? But because these drugs are accumulating, they're killing the tumor regardless. So we had to add an entire layer to our technology where we built a medical device that would actually simulate the blood circulation and the liver metabolism. Um, what was that moment like when you kind of realized that you had to redo or rebuild this whole nother process? Yeah, that was, that was uh, crazy because so myself and my co-founder, we have the biology and chemistry background, but this required a little bit of hardware too. And luckily, nanoengineering did prepare us for basic electrical engineering and hardware, but that was at a theoretical level, like we couldn't practically execute on it. So we were just like trying to figure out what to do. And we, we knew that neither of us could actually build this. So we were just like figuring out who do we hire? Who do we get to build this, right? Um, so we had to vet through all these people, but uh, luckily, while we were at the Singularity University Accelerator, we met someone who did a bunch of research on this at Harvard, uh, at Wyss Institute. So we hired her on a contract to build the, that prototype, um, which is what we pitched to Disrupt. So luckily, uh, we're just glad that we had uh, money at that point, because uh, it's certainly not something that 
we could have just picked up on our own. Um, you know, it's something that requires a PhD in this field to build that kind of device. Luckily, we had money because uh, with that, we were able to afford someone who could uh, actually build what we were asking for. Now you are, you're, you know, you're more established. You have some partnerships with, uh, you know, some, some great institutions. Where do you feel the company is at right now? Most biotech companies fail at kind of like the stage that we just passed. So we feel like we just scraped by the value of death where uh, we needed money to get like human trials started right? Since we just closed, we feel like we just grazed through that valley of death there. And what we're doing now is getting our first product for breast cancer to human patients so that we can test it. If it works, we can get regulatory approval and start sales on that. Um, and we're also, uh, you know, partnered with places like Stanford and Waterloo to uh, do research on other cancers like colon cancer. So we're kind of building up a pipeline right now just to de-risk everything and have more products ready for, you know, whether or not our first product uh, gets approved uh, regulatory-wise, we still have a bunch of other cancers that we can work on and we're developing ourselves through that. So we have like a bunch of pipeline products ready. You know, there's something that I've been wondering and, and I haven't asked yet. What does the name Orotech even mean? It's uh, from the symbol uh, Ouroboros. So it's, it's a Greek symbol that was used in medieval times uh, for chemistry, for ringed chemical structures but it also signifies regeneration. So the symbol is a snake or dragon eating its own tail. So it can be used to represent the cycle of life or regeneration. And uh, in cancer, it's interesting because uh, cancer is kind of like your body eating itself in a way. So the symbol also can represent how cancer is destroying you from the inside, right? But we first came up with this because uh, of the chemicals that we were using were all like ringed chemical structures. And we thought that because this symbol was used to represent those in like medieval times, we could uh, take that name. So now you, you just secured um, investment from a corporate VC, a material science company, did yeah. you say? How did that come about? And I guess, you know, what did, what did that feel like to, to, you know, lock down? Well, it took a really long time for one. Uh, so uh, we pitched at TechCrunch Disrupt at the very end of September. Um, and so since October, we've been talking to uh, investors. We either met them through the event or because we had our articles published and people saw that and they reached out to us directly. Uh, so this was one of the VCs that reached, us to, uh, reached out to us at the uh, end of December. So, you know, that was near Christmas. So we had a couple emails back and forth, but, you know, they went on vacation and we restarted the process in January. A month in, they said that they'd be interested in uh, putting a million in, uh, but, you know, they had to do due diligence. and due diligence took like three months at least. And uh, so that took a really long time. And then after that, just a lot of negotiations to make sure that we had, you know, as much control of the company as possible, didn't give up a board seat or anything like that. So we got uh, some good terms from that. Then it was once we had the term sheet where every other VC who was like stalling started to come in. Uh, so we got the term sheet two or three weeks ago. And then like, you know, five other VCs started saying, oh, wait, wait, we're interested in coming in, right? And then, you know, we got a couple other term sheets and we were just like balancing like which one to take. Like one was a higher valuation, but from a less strategic VC versus lower valuation strategics. And we were just like uh, debating all that. But uh, we signed our first, uh, first one last weekend. Uh, and now, now we have like a lot of choice when it comes to investors because most of our uh, round or half our round is done. Plus uh, the slice campaign is coming up. 
What does it mean to see your vision sort of unfolding uh, a few years in and, you know, making progress? Uh, every month that passes, I become more confident in what we're doing just because the data gets better. We move further in traction and the company just keeps building on itself, right? Like I'm, I'm a guy who looks at statistics a lot and I look at like when companies fail, how companies fail. We've scraped through a lot of like the big failing points, like a lot of companies fail just at the very start with co-founder issues or uh, a bad idea. Then other companies uh, don't have the technology working, so they fail there. Some companies fail at the fundraising phase. So we, as, as we pass through these phases, we become like more and more confident in what we're doing. You know? What do you want to accomplish in your lifetime? What would be you know, a measure of success for you? My ultimate goal, I think, is a little too out there ambitious. I just uh, really want to like cure as many diseases as possible so that we get, you know, longer and longer lifespans. And, you know, one day we might become immortal. We'll see. I don't know. I think that's an interesting goal to work uh, towards. Uh, and personally, because I've gotten so into healthcare, despite biology having been my like worst subject and my least interesting subject, but now I'm, I'm really into it. So I just want to keep going on this path where, you know, I deal with different diseases and figure out ways to, uh, treat them right um, or cure them but like I also am very optimistic about humanity as a whole so I hope that you know we can all like work towards building some kind of utopia in our lifetimes you know maybe not unlimited energy food water and all that but something close that was Dalik Ranantunga talking about his journey if you would like to learn more about Orotech and their current crowdfunding campaign you can find that at slice.capital. That is slice.capital. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.